what is the function of our eyelashes? They serve multiple functions, it turns out. One is that if an object comes near your eye and it touches your eyelash, it's an early warning system for a collision. You close your eyelid and you protect that delicate optical surface of your cornea from damage. And so they serve that function. They prevent dust and they even actually help retain moisture on the surface of the eye, which, which then I started to think about some more. And I thought, well, if we get eyelash extensions, we've got more of that protection. That could actually be a good thing. Always ask why. Why is this the way it is? The whole goal is to rise the industry, to grow it. Yeah, don't worry about giving us credit, guys. We're not here for that. If it grows the industry, that's what makes me happy. Well, when you first said it, I was going to hang up. <laughs> yeah. and... It's not a race you want to win. Yeah, you're going to lose because it'll be too cheap. You'll be working for like McDonald's money. Otto, Mitter, on to our show from Alibana. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on board. Okay, we'll take 20. I, I can't this. do math. I'm a beauty professional. Yeah, they panning. I do teeth whitening. I'm like, okay, there's some point where you got to draw a line. My biggest concern is longevity and making sure that you've got the best possible mechanical fit. If you're looking for a lash podcast that will challenge how you do lashes, build you up, and help you create a business that not only thrives, but allows you to live a life you're proud of, you've come to the right place. This is Lashcast, your friend in the lash industry. Coming to you from the City of Roses, this is the broadcast by Lash Professionals and for Lash Professionals. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Today, we are ready to get started with our UV series. We have like seven, eight, maybe nine episodes. I don't know how many it is. And we're going to spread it out between now and April to really give you, hopefully, the definitive answer that UV lights are maybe safe. <laughs> No, we're going to give you a lot of details. We're going to give you some tools. We're going to talk about it in many different ways, as I said in our last episode, where we kind of set it all up. And today, we have Todd Harris joining us. He has a PhD in physics and works for a company called Triple Ring Technologies. And he actually helped work with Loom, which is a robotics company that basically um, uses UV light currently on the Loom robot. So if you've seen those videos, I'm sure you have all over Instagram where you see this robot and most people are, oh my gosh, this looks so scary. We're going to have another episode where we're going to actually we did one like a couple years ago, but we'll have one again sometime soon. And right now the plan is to have them actually come to LashCon so you can meet them, talk to them. I wish you could bring a robot, but it's super heavy and expensive. So they won't be here with that, but they will be there so you can learn more about this and hopefully come to the conclusion that we have that it's not scary. It's, it's actually more safe. And it's not going to take our jobs. So anyhow, that's a whole other side note. What we want to get into today is about UV lights and what's going on with this whole thing. And today we thought we'd go to the expert, the, the start for the top, I should say. Todd, because he has a PhD in physics. This is stuff he does all the time. He works with lights. He works with lasers. He works with UV. He understands all this stuff, how it works. And he's going to break down some things, really three things that you need to know. First, you need to know when we are looking, and we, we take a while to get there because I'm a little slow. Tuss isn't, but I'm the slow one in the group here. And we talk about three things that you need to track or understand when you're looking at UV lights. You need to talk about the wavelength. You need to talk about the radiance, which is how much power is going per unit area, and we'll get into that. And then exposure time, how long you're being exposed to that light. These are the three things that are going to be kind of like our guiding lights when it comes to saying whether or not something is good or not. And then, by the way, after this episode, you're going to see another one come up next week. We're going to have Todd back for part two because he said there are some things that he really wanted to clarify and 
he learned some new stuff and we're gonna have him come on and on top of that we sent him actually documents from one of the brands who sent us their basically their all their paperwork for their certification to say for that their products are safe and he um he gave us his feedback on that which so you want to wait for that for part two because i think right now one of the misunderstandings in our industry is that there's only one brand that's safe and everyone else is dangerous and so we want to help open up your mind that maybe, maybe that's not quite try, true. Maybe there's other options out there for you to try. And, and I'm not saying there aren't unsafe brands. Um, we'll get into that, some of that today with Todd too. So anyhow, that's all that. But before we get into that episode, let's do some announcements. LashCon tickets go on sale March 26th, so we're looking at about four weeks from now, all right? So if you've been waiting and you've been anxious and I get DMs, texts all the time about this, it's coming, it's coming. Just a short period of time, March 26th, um, and it's going to be this year. LashCon will be again in Anaheim October 11th through the 14th. We also have our clubhouse relaunch. We have delayed it. We're going to do it in March. We're going to wait till April 8th now. So if you've been waiting to join us in the clubhouse, you're going to have to wait a little longer, an extra month. Sorry about that. And you'll basically, we'll have a week launch in April, and then you'll join us in May. So I know a couple of people I talked to said, oh, yeah, you'll sign up in March and join us in April. Fortunately, we're going to do that in May because I just, with LashCon, I need to focus on that in our current clubhouse, and then we will have a little more time on our hands in April to get a whole new class of people signed up into our clubhouse, and then we will go from there. Tusty's retention course, we have one that we're going to be doing live in Kansas City. I should have that up very soon, the links for that. We have only two openings there. That's April 13th, 14th in Kansas City. It's $1,700, but if you're a clubhouse member and you're listening, it's only only 1500 for you, so you save $200. And then after that, most likely, guys, we're going to be going pretty much a single-day class with everything else being a hybrid, meaning the class theory will be online, and you meet us for one day. And we're going to have places here in L.A. and New York. We're going to be this coming weekend on uh, March 3rd through the 5th. will be the IBS show, so if you're there, come up and say hi to us. Otherwise, we'll be at the Last Boss Summit speaking on April 26th, 27th in Austin. We'd love to see you guys there. Okay, that's all for announcements. Now let's get to our interview where we sit down with Todd Harris from Triple Ring Technologies. Hey, Smart Cookies. I am super excited about our guest today. I'm always excited about bringing somebody who is an expert in their field. And today, Mr. Todd Harris from Triple Ring Technologies is here with us to discuss what we've all been waiting for, or it's been on the top of our mind for quite a bit of time, is UV lights. And he is the man to express and to help us understand this technology. So welcome to the program, Todd. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. We were introduced by a mutual friend, Nate from Loom yeah. and smart guy. And, and he only hires smart people. So I know that you have a wealth of information to share with. Can you share with our audience what makes you an expert in your field? So education wise, I got my PhD back in 2001 in physics which is a general thing compared to optical engineering or whatever. But my PhD work involved lasers and holography and writing holograms and very cold crystals and storing information and processing information with those crystals. And then ever since then, ever since graduating, 
from the physics department there in Montana State University over the last 23 years. I've been involved in lots of different projects that have all had a theme of optics running through them in some fashion or another, whether they involved lasers or other types of light sources, like whether it was developing optical materials or now in my present position with Triple Ring Technologies, where we tend to specialize in medical devices using light in either therapeutic ways or diagnostic ways to help improve people's lives and and save lives. That's amazing. I just want to go back to what you said, and I just want to clarify, because you said your project involved crystals and writing writing things on crystals. And I think that some gals in the beauty industry might think that you're actually collecting like quartz crystals and amethyst, the kind that we see in shop windows, and like you're writing stuff on that. Is that what Like is in that a mall, what, you work in a mall, right? Yeah, is that what <laughs> you mean? So, so not quite, but not too far off. So the types of crystals we were using, that I was using in graduate school and actually afterwards as a postdoc, were synthetically grown crystals. Like lab-grown diamonds? Lab-grown crystals. And some of the lasers that I used to to do that work actually incorporated as the actual lasing medium, the thing that made the light, lab-grown crystals. And some of those crystals were actually technically sapphires, but with very specific small amounts of different types of elements in them to make them optically active in a particular way so that we could extract light of a particular color from those lasers after pumping them with big, powerful lamps and things like that. Right. I know that they use sapphire for an IPL or those- What's an IPL? Sorry. Tons pulse light devices for skincare. Like they have Ah, at-home uses for- Bed spas and stuff like that. Bed spas and stuff. Like they will use on the handheld piece, the tip has got a sapphire. So they put, I guess, the laser or the energy through it and it kills the follicle of the hair or they use it for- like a YAG laser, it's going to kill blood vessels and things like that. Don't they need that piece to be certain made of, so it filters the light in a specific way? Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And you just brought up another crystal that I've worked with a lot with, you said YAG, AG, which stands for yttrium aluminum garnet. Yes. And the garnet part is the part that might catch the attention of folks who are thinking about gemstones and so forth. Is is it called yttrium? I always called it yttrium. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Well, depends on where you're from. Tomato, yeah. tomato, right? Mine, don't worry about it. Well, either way, you are the expert. And so do you do people hire you for your services as a consultant on, like you said, for medical devices, like other companies? Are you able to share some of the projects that you've worked on in the past? Yeah, I can talk a bit about some of the projects. We did actually do some work for Loom, like I mentioned. Mm -hmm. We had uh, a really interesting project where there was a local startup company that was making a designing a a cute little robot that would run around your house and was able to, as it was running around your house, map where the furniture was and could avoid falling downstairs and avoid hitting your dining room table. And, and it was just, it was pretty sophisticated, packed with uh, a lot of tech. It actually hit the market for about $800 a pop, but for reasons I can go into, didn't continue on market. But what we did, what I did was design the optical navigation system for it, which basically used a laser, shot the laser into the room in your house, but did it safely. So we actually, because this was a short little robot and it was down on the floor and they were advertising it as 
to millennials with one kid. Here's a companion for your kid. Uh, and they didn't want, they wanted to make sure, obviously, that it was eye safe, that the laser was eye safe for not only the kid, but also for the pets. So I actually, at one point, had to call up my sister, who's a veterinarian, to get me a referral to an ophthal to a veterinary ophthalmologist to start asking about cat and dog eyes. So we had to, of course, engineer the laser illumination system to put the light into the right parts of the room, to be able to map everything, but then also to avoid obstacles while simultaneously be safe for any human, canine, or feline eyeballs that were present in the room, potentially. So keep the, the emission levels low enough. So that's safe. So it's safe, right? Yeah. I wonder if it's the one that we bought. We uh, bought it. We bought a little, little robot. Uh, robot that it's crawled like a, around the floor, and it was yeah, his little and I pet. can't. I forget what's called. All of a sudden, L- I can't. Lumi. Lumi or well, this one was called Curry. K U R I. Okay, yeah. that's a different the one. Robotics. I think they sold about eight hundred of them. Ah, uh, not enough. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the parent, then the parent company couldn't figure out the business model or something. So. Like, well, 800, that's a lot. By the way, it's funny you mentioned all this stuff. My dad was an engineer at EE, and he worked for a company back in the 70s called Spectrophysics. And they oh, used, yeah, Spectrophysics. You so used lots of their lasers. Oh, yes. you do? Okay. Yeah, my dad was, he helped design power supplies for the back in the 70s. And I was the kid, I, back <laughs> dating this here, I would take a laser to school, actually, for show and tell. And Fun. it would give me a lower powered one. And I, and I was the coolest kid in the class because I would show <laughs> off a laser. And then when Star Wars came out, I actually, my dad had one rig uh, set up to be like a laser gun. And I was, yeah, growing up in the Silicon Valley, you have those advantages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. true. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, we have um, tapped you because of your extensive knowledge of the lights to help us understand a new thing in our industry, which is the UV light or LED light curing systems that lash artists are using to cure the adhesive. And there are a couple different models on the market. There's one that's handheld. And then there's a couple that most people are using, which is like a lamp. Foot pedal that turns it on and off too is how they power. Right. 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 And so our biggest thing is safety. And we wanted to pick your brain to be able to find out or help us to understand what would make a model safe enough for the delicate eye tissue? How would we be able to trust when somebody says it's been safety tested? How do we decipher what that means? I don't think anyone's going to do this to hurt people, but I don't think everyone who's doing it is a, is aware of this, how it really works. I think they're just trying to make some money and sell and, and they understand basics, but we thought it'd be great to get someone who actually understands the science behind it all, maybe help our audience make better decisions on where they move and make decisions as far as buying these products. Products. So if you're able to walk us through like a checklist or we could just start from there. Well, we just start with what is the, if you can explain how the LED light curing system works, like you, how you have an adhesive, how does light introduce into that cure adhesive and if that's your area. Yeah. So this is a little bit at the edge of my expertise as far as the actual photochemistry part of this. I want to be talking to someone who's a polymer chemist, one specifically who's, who knows a lot about photopolymers which are the types of the types of materials that you would use for this. And of course, I've used these materials in our projects as well to bond optics into assemblies and put things together. And there, there's a variety of these materials out there that operate by a couple of different mechanisms where you shine light in it and it turns the liquid into a solid by taking all of the monomers, the individual small elements of, of like molecules. Adhesion. Yeah. And, and getting them to bond to together and start forming chains. 
and then it turns into a solid. And that's a gross oversimplification for <laughs> what's a very complicated process. But as you said, at the heart of it is you've got to shine light into it, and you've got to shine for different types of chemistries, you've got to shine light of different wavelengths, whether it's some work well with blue light in deep blue, which are you know very close to the, the ultraviolet, and some work better with ultraviolet, and it just depends on the chemistry and how much energy you need to break the chemical bonds to start the initiators that are in these chemical soups to begin the process. Definitely not my area of expertise, but there's a lot of information out there and available on that. Yeah, we actually had a chemist on to talk a little bit about that side, which okay. is yeah. great. But what he didn't have all the answers, I think was what you're saying. You understand the UV side very well. He and, understood and the, he understood the, the chemistry so, side. <laughs> so mostly he was saying, and he has some history of developing these products. Some UV like light. A, he uses a cyanoacrylate with a photo initiator, maybe some polymethyl methacrylate in there. So it basically, once it, the photons of light hit it, that's what the catalyst is to start the polymerization process from taking the monomers into a polymer. And the ones that he's formulated for mostly are for UV or a visible light. We know that UV light can cause extrinsic aging. It can damage the DNA in the cells so that lesions develop decades later on the skin. And as beauty professionals, as estheticians, we're really concerned about not wanting to expose the skin to anything that is going to cause premature aging. So that automatically brings up a conflict in our minds to think, how is it possible that I'm going to expose my client to UV light and it's going to be safe? Now, I know that there's filters on lights and there's also power. If it doesn't have enough power, can you explain how it could be that it's safe to expose the eye to UV light? So just a clarification here, are we talking about exposing the eye or are we talking about expo exposing the eyelid? Oh, Very good eyelid, question. Yeah. Yes. We are uh, talking about closed eye with the eyelid. And it's basically just actually almost in front of the eyelashes. So not exactly on the lid. I'm sure that the light depending on the source, some of that light will get on there, on the eyelid, but it's usually... Well, we showed some pictures. Some were, I think one device we showed is very limited and the other one was a little bit bigger. In fact, I, you worked with, I know with Loom and Loom has a very limited amount, I think that they hit. It's the same place that it would be with the Loom technology. So it's like right in front. Right. So when we're talking about the safety or non-safety of, of any kind of light source, there's multiple factors that weigh into this. One of them is the wavelength. So just to talk about what that means, when we talk about wavelength, we're talking about a way of characterizing the color. If we're talking about visible light, and the wavelengths of visible light extend from about 400 nanometers to about 700 nanometers. And then for these photopolymerizable materials for gluing on lashes, we're usually talking about wavelengths that are in the near ultraviolet, which extends from about 315 nanometers to 400 nanometers, right at the edge of the blue there. And that wavelength, if we're talking about the eye, that wavelength, that region of wavelengths of light can actually make it through the cornea and back to the front surface of the lens. And the effects that it can have on the eye are it can effectively cause promptly a sunburn on the eye, which is why we wear sunblock when we go outside as well, sunglasses, to block those UVA rays and, in fact, UVB rays. 
But UVB rays were usually not present in these sorts of sources that we're using for UV curing. So, but then with the skin, yeah, you're right. UVA is definitely known as an, an agent in causing, again, okay, a little bit at the edge of my expertise here. I'm not a dermatologist, okay? But when I think about premature aging of skin, I think of breakdown of connective tissue, that being collagen. And it's known that UVA promotes that. That's right. So those that first piece, there's the, what is the wavelength we're talking about? And then we need to talk about, well, what is the irradiance or how much power per unit area are we throwing at the surface? And in this case, if we just restrict ourselves to talking about skin, because we're going to just stipulate, okay, the eyelid is going to be closed. And we've at least got some sort of control. And let's just imagine that for any of these applicators that there's some sort of process involved that prevents the light from coming on while the eyelid, while the client's eyelid is open. Right. Mm. We're not going to worry about the eyes. So let's just confine it to skin. So what we did to try to help Loom design their light source to be safe was we tested against the standards that exist for this sort of thing which are the IEC 62471 standards. And in those standards, they have so-called exposure limits. And those exposure limits depend on a couple of things. They depend on, again, back to that wavelength piece. What wavelength of photons are we actually talking about here? What color of light? And then how densely are we throwing those at the surface? In other words, how much power per unit area, how much irradiance are we irradiating the surface with? And then it's a matter of how much exposure time we're talking about at those kinds of wavelengths. And, and if you don't have all three of those pieces, you don't have the whole story to be able to make a judgment. Bear in mind that those standards were written by the IEC and they used exposure limits that were recommended by another organization and their five-letter acronym always escapes my brain. So I'm going to do just a real quick cheat here. And while you're doing that, I just want to re yeah. reiterate those three things. The IEC yeah. 62471 standard, it's based on the wavelength, like the color of it. Wavelength, power density, or irradiance. Mm -hmm. And exposure. And exposure. Time, yeah. Time is exposure. Okay. You got to know those three things, right? And so those exposure limits that were adopted by the IEC and then put forward in the 62471 standards, those came from the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection, which is the ICNIRP is the name of that organization. This was it sort of exposure limits that came from really during the 70s and 80s, probably dozens of meetings of lots of world experts looking at the biological effects and whatever data was available. Some involved some testing on animals. We may find that distasteful, but okay. Rhesus monkeys, for instance, I think were probably involved in some of this testing where their skin and their eyes were irradiated. The biological effects were noted and published. They did biopsies and things like that. Right. And they saw what the effects were. And then what the ICNIRP did then was they came up with fairly conservative, with safety factors already built in, exposure limits, and that then got uh, you know adopted and published as a standard 
by the International Electrotechnical Commission in the IEC 62471 standards. And, and I should also note that there's another standard that applies here. There's ISO 60601 standards that apply to medical devices in particular, and the dash two dash fifty seven subset of standards of that actually apply to cosmetic aesthetic devices. Oh, okay. Use light. And if you look at that standard, they've actually absorbed the entirety of the IEC 62471 just verbatim. Okay. Mm. So it's almost it's the same. So they're effectively the same. And so I'm saying a lot of words here and I'm trying to get your all the way to your question. And I'm just gonna preface this at this point with that there's a lot of murkiness around this that one of your questions to me over email was, is there one equation we could go to that would tell us whether a light is safe or not? And in a nutshell, no. Okay. <laughs> Just in a nutshell, no. Okay. It depends on the context. It depends on the implementation. I think that from my perspective, if a device manufacturer went to the trouble of going to, like we were discussing earlier before the before we started recording, uh-huh. if a device manufacturer went to a third, an independent third-party testing house, and they had their device tested against the IEC 61 standards or the ISO 60601-2-57 equivalent, essentially standard, and they got a certification, they should tout it. They should point you to it because that says we paid good money to somebody professional who knows what they're doing to test against these standards and tell us whether we've met the thresholds or not. And just to zoom out for a second, what people often do, so so I'm in addition to essentially being an engineer for my company and wearing lots of other hats, one of the hats I wear at the company is to be the laser safety officer and the light safety officer. And the question I get very often is, well, where's the threshold between safe and unsafe? And that's really a hard question to answer actually because it comes back to what is the context, what is the implementation? So if you go to one of these testing houses and you get a test done against of your device against one of these standards and you get a certificate, that would give me a lot of confidence that at least you cared about. Right. Mm-hmm. If you were willing to spend the money to get an independent party to evaluate it. But still, the devil's in the details the following way. So the standards call for testing light sources under certain conditions, say from a distance of 200 millimeters is one of the prescriptions. Well, what if you're not using in your device that light source at 200 millimeters, but you're using it closer? That could take the light that you're putting on the client and concentrate it more potentially than it would be at a greater distance away, okay? It's like a dosage. It's like, yeah, what it does is it increases the dosage because you might be closer in if the light is diverging or spreading out through space as it goes. So for the two sets of questions you sent my way for company one, company two, and what their claims were, I think the one that was a little bit, gave a little bit more confidence was independent testing house against this standard. If somebody states a an irradiance value, like how many watts per square centimeter or something like that. Well, I got to know, well, what's the weight? Like, how long is the dosage? How long is that amount of light being applied? And what, and what are the other details involved? 
So it's a lot more complicated than is being put out there. Right. It sounds like it's extremely dynamic and there's so many variables. I was going to say what, based on what you said a while ago, some specs from a couple of brands that gave us their information. And it sounds like just even based off, that's like, okay, but it's not really enough, right? It sounds like it's not enough to make a determination. Mm -hmm. Got it. So we talked about this right before we we came on together. So I'm sorry if you have to repeat it, but (laughs) one of the testing bodies are not you informed us it's not a testing body, it's ANSI. And some people have gone through the trouble of having their product tested or certified by that. And you gave us some more details that I wasn't aware of. Is it enough for somebody to say, oh, my product is ANSI certified? Well, that leaves me with some confusion because as far as I'm aware, ANSI, which is the American National Standards Institute, is the name of that organization, my understanding of their role out there in the marketplace is that they actually publish standards, but not that they test anything. And so what you would do is you'd go to like an underwriter's laboratory or some one of these nationally recognized testing laboratories, and you'd hire them to test your device against an ANSI standard, which is not the same thing as that as saying that it's certified by ANSI because ANSI doesn't do that. And that just may maybe a semantics thing that may be a indication of problem on this. Yeah. So ANSI or ANSI basically is the one that take looks at IEC 6241 But you don't take your laser system to ANSI and say, test this. You take it to UL or you take it to some other nationally recognized testing laboratory and say, please test this device against this ANSI standard. And then what you can do is you can say, having now having that certificate in hand from that NRTL, you can say, okay, my device passed a test against this particular standard, but it's usually there's letters and numbers, not just ANSI is a broad organization. I'm trying to connect the dots between what you share with with IEC, ISO, those standards and ANSI. So I'm assuming that ANSI sets up their own standards. And ANSI is like a sibling to ISO and they're on, they're on equal footing. They're standards writing organization. Okay. Who recognizes ANSI's authority? Well, so here's the interesting thing. All of these standards are voluntary. You comply with them voluntarily, device manufacturer. Now, if your device has to be regulated by the FDA, for instance, and and it's an interesting question in this context, whether devices should be regulated by the FDA or not, we can get to that. If your device has to be regulated by the FDA, the FDA will require you to show compliance with with certain standards that are applicable to your device. Aside from that, compliance is voluntary. That makes sense. So even with the cosmetic one that you mentioned, the ISO 2-257, that it's all voluntary. Unless required by the FDA. And of course, the FDA 
requires by law that certain things that have certain functions be tested to be able to be sold in the United States. Like the medical things, right? Right, like the medical things. But the cosmetic ones don't have that requirement. I think that's the thing. There's a big change. We're, a friend of ours emailed us about FDA had a big change in the world of cosmetics recently. Oh, that's right. And just, we don't know much January about it, but 1st. we were just still, it, did, it went into action January 1st of this year. And there are some new standards out there with cosmetic labs and such. As I was doing a little bit of preparation for this, I got a little bit curious about what FDA is doing about this and for their, for what they call aesthetic products or cosmetic products. They make a statement about a product may have to be FDA accepted in order to go on the market if it involves changing the structure or function of a body component. It's very broad, right? Right. It's very broad. But so, so then I got to thinking about it in this context and asked myself, well, okay, what is the function of our eyelashes? They serve function. They serve multiple functions, it turns out. Yeah. One is that if an object comes near your eye and it touches your eyelash, it's an early warning system for a collision. And so they blink, you close your eyelid and you protect that delicate optical surface of your, of your cornea from damage. And so they serve that function. They prevent dust. Filter. Uh, and they even actually help retain moisture on the surface of the eye, which, which then I started to think about some more. And I thought, well, if we get eyelash extensions, we've got more of that protection. That could actually be a good thing. As long as the process of attaching them and having to go back and get them attached again through repeated treatments doesn't disturb the natural function of the ones that are already there. I agree with what we're saying. The FDA, if you're altering the physical body, right? Is yeah. that considered now an FDA or necessity for the FDA to be involved in some way? It, cer it certainly falls within the broad language that you can just easily find at FDA's website. Yeah. But I guess it's just a matter of time before somebody raises that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that it, in terms of, unless they're being put on wrong, it's very hard to permanently damage a hair follicle in the eye just because it takes a, a long time for that damage to happen. It's about two weeks, 10 days to two weeks for it to start putting enough traction on there to irritate and scar the follicle. But most people intervene before that happens. Because it's uncomfortable. Because it's super uncomfortable. It doesn't happen on the hair. It, it, we get traction on all the time because we're not that aware of it, but on the eye, it's, we're acutely aware, but it is an irritating, it can be an irritating process. The adhesive that all of us use is an eye and skin irritant. That's not to say it's like a lot of things that we put on our hair in the, in the process of grooming beauty, like bleach, ammonium peroxide, that's irritating. Let's talk about the NERDLE, the national nationally recognized testing lab laboratory. So this yeah. is the third, this is the third party, the independent third party that has no stake in the game. And you pay them good money to test your device and show that it passes muster with one of these standards, whether it's from ANSI or IEC or some other stand standards. So Todd, can you take us through the process again? So let's say I've got a product and I want to make sure that it's safe for my customers to buy and for them to use. So how do I do What's the first thing that I do? First of all, you've got to engineer it right. And what often happens with these situations is these safety standards impose constraints on your engineering. So in this case, you're trying to bond an artificial eyelash to a real eyelash. You want to do that 
You want to do some number of them during a, I guess I'll call it a treatment, for lack of a better word. A service. A service, okay. And of course, in order to be a successful business, you got to have throughput of certain number of clients per day in order to be able to make a profit and stay in business, which puts a time limit on how much time we can spend putting those eyelashes on. But working against you is we'd like to make the application of the light safer. We'd like to stretch it out over time and make it weaker. So you've got these competing requirements of get it done fast so we can get clients through as we can in a day versus, but we can't irradiate them too much. So where we come in on this sort of thing is we help, which we did in the case of Loom, help clients design their system so that with knowledge of the standards that are going to apply and that would prevent them, in the case of a medical device, from actually going to market, in the case of a non-medical device like this, where really what you're trying to do is give people confidence that they can come in and get this service and not be harmed in any way. Exactly. You want to instill that confidence that you've done it right. And so what we do is we would guide the, in my role, we would guide our client through the process of that aspect of the engineering, set up the tests in our own laboratory that they know, that we know they're going to need to pass or going to want to pass. Mm -hmm. So in this case, in working with the folks at Loom, they were very safety conscious and the fact that they went to an independent testing house and all that kind of thing gives me a lot of confidence. And of course, coming to somebody like us to get set up for success, essentially, so that they know that they're going to pass those tests. I'm going to try to uh, attempt to take everything we share and put, boil it down to a, a kind of like a roadmap. Go for it. Then we can poke holes at some things or, or go more deep. Because the way I look at this is back in the 70s and 80s, these organizations came together. You, you said INCRP, I think it was, and, and it came together, or organized, like agreed standards based on all this testing done, where it was on animals and stuff like that, and figured, hey, this is what's acceptable levels of exposure to this certain, all different types of stands for different lights and stuff like that. I'm These guessing are the guidelines. Yeah. guidelines. Yeah. So they came up with that and created, then out of that came out the IEC standards, ISO standards, and the ANSI standards that became, I guess, the benchmarks of that, what everything is measured against if you're going to be working in, in this realm. It right. makes sense right. of UV light like we're using for lashes right now. So companies come out and they try to build, based using those standards, they go out and they build their stuff and they, I'm assuming most of them know about these standards, hopefully, and are trying to build base with these. Are, some may not. Some may not. Okay, so that may or may some, not. Some may know and not care. Or not care, exactly. Sadly, <laughs> so, people do anything for a dollar, there right? are folks yeah. like that out there in yeah, the world. Absolutely. So there's that going on. They're building these products. And some of these companies have gone out after they get done and gone to the third party. Like you said, Loom, we know in our company called Illumino has been very big on announcing that they've got, done these third they've party done it right. and they've had these tests done and they have certificates to show that look what we've done this is what these companies said that we passed these certain standards that have been accepted now for almost 40 50 years as the way things should be but the exception to the rule is none of this is required because it's not falling underneath FDA requirements because these are right. cosmetic products. So companies can go out, make products that do not run by these standards and can potentially be damaging to people. But because it's not FDA requirements involved, they don't need to go and get any of these things tested by third parties. And they can go out to market and sell to the audience or to, their, to whoever they want to without any at least initial problems, unless obviously down the road, if there's health issues that come, they can go 
be sued, I'm sure, and so forth. But I think that's a fair summary. Yeah. Where we're at so far? (laughs) You said one of the NERDLs, like the UL Underwriting Laboratory, is just a third-party approval, right? So would it be okay to say, like, oh, if it has a UL certify on a certification on it, that that is... That that is for sure, or is, can people fake that? Because I've been told that doesn't really mean anything. It's just about electrical. So that's a really good point, and and that's why I say if you've got it, flaunt it. If you've got a certification document from a nationally recognized testing laboratory, and that certification is against a relevant standard, point your customers to it, go it to them, put it out there. Because I, I'm going to go off on a little, another little tangent real quick. Go for because it. Because of something that, that Paul just said about people can stamp it with whatever they want. We had just had a solar eclipse back in October. The prior solar eclipse was, I think, in the summer of 2016. That was one of these annular solar eclipses where, where it's really dangerous to look at directly because of what it, it can just burn your retina in, immediately. And there were a lot of people trying to get these little fold-out glasses that you put on to be able to look at it. And there's there happens to be a, a standard that's associated with that. It's ISO 12312-2. And the warning was, make sure if you go on the internet and buy these glasses and prelude to going and watching the eclipse, that they're marked with ISO 12312. And then it turned out afterwards that there were some cheap Chinese knockoffs. And sorry, i China, but there were some cheap knockoffs that had those letters and numbers stamped on it, and they absolutely were not. They were not compliant with the standard, and people are looking at something that's going to damage their eyesight with something that's yeah, fake. That's horrible. It's criminal. Yeah, so, so that happens out there in the world. And so there's an overriding theme of buyer beware on all this stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess, hopefully, again, if someone's faking it on the device, they can also give a certificate that's been forged or, or, or is, is not real, too. But you hope by... Well, and how far are you going to go, yeah. right? How far down that rabbit hole are you going to go? <laughs> As a consumer, I imagine that these tests are quite expensive. Is it out of the realm of possibility that you could just as an independent consumer say, I want you to test if this my device that I bought is safe just for peace of mind? How much do these tests cost? Depending on the test, it can be hundreds to thousands of dollars. Wow! So okay. that's out of the possibility. For and most is people. there? I guess then uh, that taking uh, taking, taking yeah. some device that you buy yourself as a consumer and taking it to a testing house is really not not possible. So, so you got to look for credible companies. You got you to look into who's involved in it. Is there a way of verifying the authenticity of the certificate that you get? Can you go back, if you've got a printed one from a website, can you go to that just to check it, like the Hall of Records, (laughs) to to find out if it's authentic? These things are not a matter of public record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know one one company um, says that they made, that's made out of Estonia. They, They say they had Caltech scientists who helped develop the product. And I'm assuming you'd hope again, that they are based on, they're trying to build to certain standards here that are acceptable because, but I guess we've never seen if, I don't think any of these companies have done the, the testing that I know, the third party testing. I guess that's the big. That's now, the big question. Now, now, now having said all this, as light sources go in terms of hazard, and again, devil's in the details, right? How much power is there? What wavelength is it? How long is the exposure? These are all the things that matter. And when you look at how the 62471 standards are actually written, what they do is they have a risk group stratification. So they have 
a group that if it falls below the lowest threshold, they call it exempt. In other words, there's no conceivable circumstances under which this thing could harm you. You'd like to be in that group, but even if you're in risk group one or risk group two, because the standards have been written with already a very conservative safety factor built in because of the IC and IRP recommendations that they're based on, even a risk group one or risk group two device is probably not a problem. Now, because of historical reasons having to do with that 62471 was originally written effectively for lamp manufacturers to be able to put their lamps out on the market and warn the next company in the supply chain who are going to take their lamps and package them into what we call luminaires, like a lamp enclosure of some sort that takes the light from that lamp and distributes it in a certain way. They put these risk group stratification numbers on the lamps to warn the people who are making the lamp housings, hey, you've got to spread this light out. So design as appropriate. And I think only more recently has that same standard been applied and bent a little bit to apply to the actual lamp systems where there's the lamp, in this case, the LED, that is then built into something that has maybe lenses and filters and mirrors that distribute the light in a certain way. So that, that's all to say, even if you're in a non-zero risk category, the risk may be so minimal. So for instance, the thinking behind the risk group two is that, again, this is situational, context matters. The rationale behind risk group two is that your aversion response to a bright light source or to the sensation of heat is what's going to provide your protection from risk group two devices. Well, what if you're in a situation where your aversion response is impeded by something? You're being held in place or you can't look away if it's something that's actual a visual stimulus, which we're really not talking about here mostly because people have their eyelids closed. Or you have an ice pack on for some reason that can't be removed and so right. it, it right. messes up with your... So, or somebody who has some neuropathy and they can't feel the sensation of heat. Hansen's disease. There you go. So while the, you know, the ICNIRP made their exposure limit recommendations and they were adopted by these standards bodies and published as standards, it doesn't cover absolutely every situation. And so one of the, in fact, one of the questions you asked me on email before this that I've been pondering a bit is how can we tell the difference between a safe and unsafe LED? Well, let me give you an example, an extreme example that will illustrate how it doesn't necessarily make sense to ask, ask that question. So we find LEDs these days in headlights on cars, very high power LEDs that light up the road for us and let us see. And at, at night, we want those headlights on because they make us safe in driving the car because now we can see the road because of those high power LEDs. Some other companies have taken those same LEDs and packaged them into handheld flashlights with concentrators on them that make them extremely bright. What if you're driving down the road in your car with your LED headlights and someone at the side of the road with one of these really bright flashlights suddenly lights it up and shines it right in your eyes 
you're suddenly flash blinded, you're startled, and you drive off the road. <laughs> is it a safe LED or is it an unsafe LED? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it depends it, on the context. How it's yeah. been used. Yeah. Right. And so I think that applies here as well. I'll go back to if somebody's willing to have a third party verify against some known standard that actually applies and articulate it well and point you to their certificate, that gives me a lot of confidence. Yeah. And ultimately, life is full of risk, right? We have risk if we do something. We have risk if we don't do something. <laughs> and you get a pretty good dose of UVA just by walking out in the sunshine. I think that's super, super helpful. I'm bummed, but that there isn't something concrete, but I suspected. Yeah, no, in order to give you a definitive answer, I would have to take somebody's product, reverse engineer it completely, and then look at their complete workflow for how they use it to determine whether it's something else. we're in risk group, we're in the exempt risk group one, risk group two, or risk group three. And then still notice the word risk is being used. Even with the risk stratification, there's residual risk that exists. And if you apply that same device and that same process to individual A, who's in the fat part of the bell curve of the general population, and you apply it to individual B, who has some sort of pre-existing medical condition, or they've got something in their diet that makes them more light sensitive or something like that, it could cause them a problem. Right. It's just like water, like you, water is, is safe and we all need it. But if you have too much water, much it, it. it can be fatal. Like if yeah, you ingest you, too you, much water, you, you, you can, no, <laughs> you can yeah. die. So it's all a variable and a dynamic. Just in conclusion, not in conclusion, but as I look at all this as, as unfortunately really in a lot of ways inconclusive, we're able to say for sure, here's three things. Look for, if you find these three things, they're safe. If you don't find them, obviously we have the three ideas, the wavelength, the irradiance, as well as exposure time. Those are three elements, but how we measure those is through, it sounds like through these standards that are put out by ANSI and so forth. And that's what we measure at. So really maybe as I'm looking at this, the only real way to know that this device without maybe like we just said could be in the risk group, but at least safe for most people would be, it, it goes, gets tested by a third party. And when they can show you that certificate, you go, that's something I would bet on. And with the internet and social media, consumers have a lot of power these days. They can put pressure on these manufacturers to go and voluntarily go along with the voluntary standards that apply to their product and get tested. One of the people that we interviewed gave us the specs, and I know it's quite general here, but it was said that the wavelength is 395 to 400, and the wattage or the it's irradiance, irradiance it's, uh, one point, one point, do you have that information? I think it's five watts at 1.2 amps, or A, I think it's amps. And then, and the time would be over the whole treatment time between one and a half minutes to two. It's done just at two seconds at a time, but over a whole appointment, depending on if it's a two-hour appointment or one hour, it's either. No, that's, they've definitively told us the wavelength range. It's right at the, from 395 to 400 is in the UVA band, just up against the edge of the balloon, just up at the end visible. So that's good that they've been that specific. I, I, when I looked at that, when you said it to me before, beforehand, I thought five watts. At, what was it? One amp? 1.2. Yeah. 1.2. So the 1.2 amps is the drive, how much electrical current they're pushing through the device through the actual led. That's at the heart of the system probably. And they're probably getting five 
that, well, actually it's ambiguous. It could be that they're driving it with five watts of electrical power, or it could be that they're getting five watts of optical power out of it. Oh, you don't know what's going in or out in this case. Right. And of course, these LEDs have a certain efficiency of converting electrical power to optical power, which is less than one, it's probably around 50 to 60%. So my guess is, based on how much current they were driving with it with, that they were probably getting, that they were probably driving it with five watts of electrical power, which means that they would get, I don't know, two and a half to three watts of optical power out. But then what happens? Once, and in either way, it doesn't matter because they left out some information here. Now I need to know whatever, how much optical power that thing put out, whether it was actually five watts or it was less than that because the electrical power in was five watts. How is that light being spread out on the skin? So in other words, how much power density or radiance is at the skin in units of, let's say, watts per square centimeter? And the standards are written for exposure to in those terminologies. And then they helped a bit with the time, but we're completely missing the irradiance piece here. And, 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 and wouldn't that also affect the irradiance? Would another variable not be the distance between the light and the skin? Or is that included with the irradiance? Right. Very good point. Let's just assume five watts of light emerge from the device. If it's an LED, it's probably going out into a big hemisphere. But then you would put a lamp system around it. You put mirrors or lenses or whatever to try to gather that light and, and direct focus it. it. Right. And then the question is: Are you measuring that right at the output, or are you measuring it at the client? Uh-huh. The right place to measure it is at the at client. At the client. Dose is happening. Yes. And so, without knowing how much irradiance is arriving at the client, I can't give you an answer on whether it's an exempt device. A risk category, a risk group one, two, or three device according to the standards. Makes sense. So what I'm hearing is this is new in the industry. For us to have peace of mind as consumers, as Lashars, as purchasers of these systems, we need to be pretty adept or at asking the distributor or the person that we're buying from all these specific criteria. The wavelength, the power, the irradiance, how is that being measured? Where is it being measured? All these really specific things so that we can have that peace of mind. And I'll be honest, I, there's no way, I don't think Lash Artists probably there's enough excitement to be able to do There's no way anybody in your industry is going to really be doing this. No, I don't think so. I mean, we love our industry, but most people, they're going to go, Where is, what's so simple? If it's not safe, I'm just not going to do it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to fight this or have to go get a degree in science to ask all these questions and measure it. Because it doesn't sound like many people are doing enough work to present this up front. They're just giving some good numbers. Maybe they are within the safe spectrum, but with, it's so simplified that we, it sounds like from you, you, you can't really figure it out. When it's overly simplified and it's incomplete, you're left going, well, what is it? Yeah. But also keep in mind here that there's a newness piece to this. So it's only in the last couple of decades that these high power LEDs came to market. And there's a phenomenon where people are uncomfortable with the new, right? In other contexts, LEDs are great. They're going to, in the next couple of decades, they're going to take over all of our general lighting. All of our general lighting is going to be LED. They're highly efficient, as I mentioned earlier, much more efficient than incandescent lamps and have a lot less UV, at least for the non-UV, the white light LEDs. 
which are actually a blue LED with a coating on it that converts the blue into other colors to give you a color balance. They're going to take over in the general lighting category and, like I said, much more efficient than incandescent lights and much less UV coming out of them than with fluorescent lights. And so this is all good stuff. And the efficiency part of it alone is great for being one of one of many solutions we're going to need for climate change. But it's probably a different discussion. <laughs> we are very excited about this whole development. We're always trying out new things. I know Tusney has already been testing out systems and trying them out and, and see if she likes yeah. them, sees great results from them. But at the same time, it's I don't feel like, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like we have any definitive answer no, yet. I don't. It's still very much unknown. And I guess we I'm need taking to, people's word for it. We have to you push know, and I'm not sure. for brands to do the research, to pay for the, it sounds like these exposure limits, they do that, you know. If consumers of the services push back on the manufacturers and essentially give them a lot of encouragement to get their systems tested against the safety standard by an independent laboratory, that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's great. No, it's always about safety and, and all that. And I think one of the things we can encourage as we go back, and I think we're going to talk to some of these other people, is and they do claim, some of them claim, oh, they do have certs. We just don't see them. Like they claim that they've been certified by CE. I know one said ROHS, which I, I think it may it's a European oh, standard. So, so, so ROHS is restrictions, stands for restrictions on hazardous substances. Okay. That actually has absolutely nothing to do with light safety. Got it. Okay. Okay. So basically they're going to have electronic circuitry in these things and it's going to drive them to use lead-free solder to solder electronic components together. Okay. Got try it. to keep lead out of the environment and stop using lead. And if you don't use it at the point of manufacture, you don't have to worry about it downstream. So that's what ROHS is. A CE mark allows you basically to say, we've cleared the hurdles for safety in the European economic community. And that's a complicated picture in and of itself. And depending on what the device is and what sort of level of risk is involved with it, you can even self-certify for CE. Oh, wow. Oh. And you just create your own documents and you have them on file. And when the commission says, well, we want to see your CE certifications, Oh, well, good. We self-certified. Well, here's the documents right here. You can show them the documents. But again, this is a thing where it's a, it's in some things, it's almost like it's voluntary, but for somebody who wants to be a lot in long-term business as a credible and highly respected business, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And the marketplace will take them down if they don't. Yeah, exactly. And that sounds like CE, well, that's the European standard, but that's again, if it's self done like you just do your own in some cases yeah and so with some products where there's a significant amount of hazard involved the governing body for ce might actually require you to go get third-party testing against standards and so and submit a package right and because this is uv on closed eyes maybe they haven't required we don't know yet but it, it's not considered as probably as risky as some other tools out there that people are using so they might have been able to get ce certified without having a third party do the certification they might have just done their paperwork 
and they have it in stock, but they have never got tested. Right. We don't know. Right. Is that something you could ask them? Are you guys certified through a third party? Is that something that it's is- Certainly ask them. Yeah. Asking's free. Yeah. <laughs> I always say yeah. that. Yeah. That'd be another good question to ask for any, the Euro, this would be the European brands. I know one of them that we talked to says they were CE certified. So I guess that would be a next, a deeper question to ask, like where, how did they get that certification? So great. Wow. Yeah. Anything else that- no, my mind is blown by how much I don't know. <laughs> it's also terribly disheartening in some ways because it's like we really have a that's lot. Be, that's because there's too much to know. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. I really appreciate you, Todd, sharing your expertise and taking the time to illuminate what we don't know. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. But yeah, nope. I think. This has been great for us. And I think if you don't mind, we may come back to you, at least ask you some questions as we learn more about this. And I wish I could have made the situation a little little less opaque. It is what it is. And you've really, you really have helped us quite a bit. We know the question, the right uh, questions to ask now. No, in fact, I wish we started with you and then we went to these interviews. I know, we, we did it, we did it backwards, people. but uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, there we go. But, so if any listeners want to contact with you, make contact or reach out, how can they find you? Well, I don't know, or do you want, or do you want anybody? <laughs> it's like, I don't need 18 emails from people I don't know asking me all sorts Well, in of terms of maybe your consulting services. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. They can find my company on the web. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Triple Ring, yeah, technology. I think that's the Ring smart thing. I, I would hate to inundate you. We have a great audience who will actually reach out and ask you all sorts of questions, but we'll leave that. They can reach out to us and we'll work with them. And save, save yeah, you so you guys reach out to us if you have, <laughs> have any question, follow-up questions. And we'll try to dig deeper. I, I almost feel like we have to go back and record all our episodes now to get more depth here. You've really helped us to understand this industry so much better and what we're doing and hopefully equip our industry to be a little wiser and smarter for it. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, that's a wrap. We're done. We're out of here. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Please follow us on Instagram at LashCast and at The Lash Conference. And remember to subscribe, share, and review. And mark your calendar and keep watching us for the next month or so as we have many, many more guests talking about this whole idea of UV lights, LED lights, and all that. Todd Harris has another episode following up. And then after that, we're going to have Dr. Harris on. We're going to have Michael Becker, who is the chemist that we have on regularly. You're going to love it, guys. Do not miss any of these episodes. I promise you when you're done, you're going to feel much more empowered to make a good decision on what you want to do with this whole idea of UV and LED lights. On behalf of my last UV baby, Tusney, as well as our special guest, Todd, I want to thank you for taking some time to listen. Keep on lashing, and remember, you have a friend in the lash industry. Bye.